Wow, Chris, you did good. I tell you what, if you want to just come up here and preach and just do the whole, whole service, that would be fine with me. He really is a jack of all trades. He's a good church member to have, and we're thankful for him stepping up in times like this. And so I just want to thank you again, Chris, for stepping in on short notice, Christian, for singing your song. I appreciate that as well, and for all of you being here um, as well. Would you please get out your Bibles now and turn to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians Chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. We're beginning the last chapter. I've told you we would make our way to it finally, but the end is near in this long sermon series we've been doing through this book. But again, today we're going to look at the last chapter or start the last chapter that Paul wrote um, to the Philippian believers in Philippi. As you're turning there and in way of introducing our text this morning, I, I want to share a story with you. It's a story about a young pastor who went to a little town to serve at the local church there. And apparently that church in particular was just known around around town as being a troubled church. You know what I'm talking about, that church that always has division and divisiveness. Well, being young, um, being a type of guy who was creative, who had fresh ideas. The pastor, of course, knew all those things, but he thought, you know what, I'm excited about what God might do at this church. I'm excited about the future of this church. And so he went there and he pastored there. Well, several years went by and all of the pastor's ideas, all of his thoughts about how he could help unify this church, how he, how he could revitalize this church, they were all shot down ultimately by the church members and by the church leadership there at that church. Ultimately, this church just did not want the change. And so being frustrated and at his wit's end about what to do, the pastor, he had one final idea. What he did is he decided to place an ad in the local newspaper on a Saturday, and it was titled this, The Church That I Pastor Has Died. That was the title of the article that he had on there, The Church That I Pastor Has Died. In that ad, he encouraged the community He encouraged the church members to come to that Sunday because that Sunday they were going to have a funeral service so that they could give this church a proper burial. Well, as you can imagine, that got everyone's attention. Everybody in town was talking about what in the world this was going to actually be. And so that Sunday, the church that was typically filled with cobwebs, that was typically filled with empty pews, it was instead filled to the brim right, with church members, with community members wanting to see what was all going to take place. However, as they sat down in the pews that Sunday, they couldn't help but notice that the sanctuary, it really did look like a funeral service. I mean, it really did. It was, it was set up that way. There was, there was a casket up front. There were flowers that were draped over that casket. When the pastor got up and spoke, he gave a eulogy of the church. He gave a history of the church, and he ended his sermon by saying this, the church has died, and today we're going to bury it. And so when the pastor got done praying his closing prayer, he took the flowers off the casket, he opened up the lid of the casket, and he invited everyone in attendance to come forward and to come pay their final respects. Well, perplexed, confused, curious, the church members, they, they came forward. Right? They, were, they were confused and wondering what, what could possibly be even in this casket. However, to their shock and horror, 
when they look in, they didn't see a deceased body. They didn't see an empty casket like they might would have guessed they would have. No, instead they saw a reflection of themselves in a mirror that the pastor had put in there because the pastor wanted them to see the church that had died. Got his point across, didn't he? Now listen, I'm not sure if that story is true or not. I've heard it before. I'm not sure if it's true or not. But, but one thing I do know is that the storyline it portrays, unfortunately, is very real. Churches do die. The church, it's meant to be an expression of, of, of God's love. God's grace, God's people coming together to to serve Him, to worship Him. But the church can also be a place of disagreement, can it? It can be a place of disunity, can it? It can be a place of dysfunction, can't it? In other words, if a church lives, if a church thrives, if the church is healthy, it's because the people in it are alive. It's because the people in it are are, are vital, they're involved, they're a part of it. Yet if a church withers, if a church dies, well, it's because the people in it have withered. It's because the heart of the people have died to want to serve the Lord. And so with that in mind now, I I want us to read our text in Philippians today because you're going to see in these verses, Paul's going to be addressing an eternal conflict or an internal issue going on in the church of Philippi. He's very concerned about it. Uh, He wants to see this conflict be settled. He wants to see reconciliation and unity take place because Paul realizes that if this conflict, if it's left unattended to, if it's left to fester, then it very well could morph into something greater than it already is, and that can kill a church. So look with me now what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says this, he says, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, he's talking to the members of this church, my joy and crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. All right, now here's the conflict that I'm talking about. I urge Yodia and I urge Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Now, right off the bat, you're going to notice a series of exhortations that are obviously written by Paul, who has a deep concern for this church in Philippi. Again, these are his, his, his friends. Okay? And so, for example, in verse 1, Paul is going to say, stand firm. In verse 2, he says, I urge. In verse 3, he says, I ask. And in verse 4, he gives them a command itself to rejoice. Now, in reading this, we, we can infer that there must have been some disagreement, some argument, some sort of spat between these two women that are mentioned here in in the text, and their argument is apparently affecting the whole church at Philippi. Isn't this just a great Mother's Day sermon? It's just funny how it fell on today. But listen, what, what Paul does here in these verses is he gives the church some pastoral leadership uh, he gives them some wisdom as, as it relates to this dispute. And in doing so, what I think he does is he gives us five components 
that every church needs to stay healthy, to, to thrive. And that's what I want to talk about with you today. So let's just go ahead and, and jump right in. Let's talk about the first one, which is found in verse 1, and the principle is this. A healthy church, number one, shows affection. Okay, a healthy church shows affection. For example, look again at the wording and the phrasing that Paul uses to describe the, the Philippian church in the first part of verse 1. He says, so then, listen to this, how he describes them. My dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown. Now listen, if that doesn't show us Paul's affection for this congregation of believers, then I don't know what will. In one sentence, Paul is expressing his gracious pastoral heart towards this group of believers. And get this, in affirming them, he provides an example of what is needed in every church if it's going to be healthy at least, and that is affection towards one another. You, you have to have that. Okay, let me just show you and kind of drill in a little bit more here. Look at that first phrase. Okay, we're just going to look at one phrase. There's multiple phrases he uses, but let's just look at the first one. He says, my dearly loved. Some translations say, my beloved. My beloved. By the way, wouldn't y'all just love to me to re refer to y'all as that? My beloved. Hello, my beloved. That's just kind of weird. I mean, I can just imagine like being on the plane and making that small talk that you always make with your pastor. You know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Where are you pastor? Oh, at Fredonia Baptist Church. There they are, my dearly loved. They are my beloved. Kind of creepy, right? A little creepy in today's world, I think. But listen, on a serious note, I, I, I do. I enjoy the phrasing he uses here. This is Paul's way of expressing to the Philippian believers, I love you. I do. I care about God cares about you. And because God cares about you, I care about you. I love you. See, I think that's important to point out to you today because the hallmark of every Christian church should be what? What should the hallmark of every Christian church be? Should it be doctrine? No, that's very important to have good doctrine, but that's not it. Should it be holiness? No, holiness is very important. We need to have holiness, but that is not the hallmark of the Christian church. No, instead, the hallmark, the seal, the stamp of every Christian church should be affection towards one another. It should be love. It should be love. If you don't believe me, just listen to what Jesus says. Take it for Jesus or from Jesus. He says in John 13, listen to what he, what he says. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, why is that command so important? Why does Jesus say it should be the hallmark of the Christian church? Well, let me answer that question by giving you another question, and that question is this. How will we ever be effective in preaching the gospel of love if we don't actually display the gospel of love to each other? Did you catch that? How are we ever going to preach it if we don't actually live it. We are to live out what we preach. We can't just extort people to, to love God. We have to exhibit what it means to love God, what it means to love others, what it means to show affection towards 
others. And get this, because we have another uh, obstacle to overcome as a church, and that is that our God is invisible. And unbelievers, they love to point that out, don't they? They love pointing that fact out. They say things like, oh, talk to me about your God. Talk to me about him. Prove God to me. Prove God to me. Let, me. let me see God. I don't see God anywhere. It's just must be for the weak, right? Must be for those who believe in some higher power so they can feel better about themselves. But, but listen to this. What love does is that it takes the invisible God and it makes him visible to the unbelieving world. That's what love does. It takes the invisible God it makes him visible to the unbelieving world. Let me just give you another scripture to, point, to, to back that point up. Okay, it's found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, and it says this, No one has ever seen God. The unbelievers are like, yeah, that's my point. But listen to what it says next. But if we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. In other words, if we love one another, then we are showing and demonstrating the very essence of who God is, the very character of what makes up God. And so we're putting that on display when we choose to love others. And so again, by Paul calling the Philippian believers his dearly beloved, his brothers and sisters, his joy, his crown, he's showing his affection towards them, and in doing so, he's teaching them. That we have to have this type of love if we're going to be healthy, if we're going to thrive, if we're going to grow as a church body. Because listen to this, if the unbelieving world could see a community of people who are truly nurturing, who are truly caring, who are truly loving and forgiving people, then maybe they might listen to what we have to say. But unfortunately, so oftentimes the church is, is none of those things. It's judgmental, it's harsh, it has these cliques, and that's when we as a church body lose our effectiveness. That's when we lose our Christian witness. We are to love one another. We are to show affection for one another. But now, secondly, Paul's going to give us another characteristic that makes up a healthy church. Again, these are characteristics that make up a, a healthy church, and that is that number two... A healthy church stands firm. Stands firm. A healthy church stands firm. Look with me now at the end of verse 1. I'm going to show you this. Paul says, in this manner, now here's the phrase, right where I'm getting it from, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, I love what Paul does here, because he doesn't start there. Okay, He doesn't start there. He starts by showing his affection. He starts by showing his love for the church. Right? But now, after he's done that, after he's saying, listen, I love you guys, I care about you guys, God cares about you, we're in this together, now he's going to begin to deal with this conflict that's occurring within the church that has to do with these two ladies that we've mentioned already in the text today. In other words, Paul is not like that pastor who puts a mirror in the casket. Okay? Paul really does love these people, and because he loves them, he's saying, you need to make a stand. Make a stand. Heal the division that's happening in the church right now. Now, what exactly does Paul mean by this, by, by standing in the Lord? Well, the Greek word for stand firm 
or, st- or uh, stand fast is the word steko. Okay, say that word. Sound, sound really intelligent right now. Steko. Can you say it? Steko. Okay, it's a military term. It means to stand in one place. It means to be immovable. It means to be stationary. It means to preserve. And so 14 times, 14 times in the New Testament, we are told to, to stand firm in the Lord. We are, turned, we are told to, to, to stand fast in the Lord, and that's the idea, to stand our ground in the Lord. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter 11, new church pops up in Antioch. The people in Jerusalem, they say, hey, Barnabas, go to that church. Uh, go talk to them. Well, when Barnabas gets there in verse 22 of that chapter, this is what he says, or this is what it says. It says that when he got there, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Now, question for you, why would he tell them that? It's a brand new church. Why would he say, continue in the Lord? Well, it's because he knew that this church was going to face conflict. He knew that they were going to face some type of opposition, whether it was internal or external, and so they needed to rely on the Lord. They needed to, to stand firm and to continue with Him. Okay, another example. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so again, the idea is that a healthy church, yes, it, it shows affection towards others, it shows love towards others, but at the same time, it also stands firm. Okay, if there's any type of division or anything that's affecting the unity, I'm going to stand firm and stand my ground and say, no, we can't have that. Okay, that's, that's, that's the spiritual stability that a church needs when a church or a church member goes through difficulty or some type of conflict. Recently, I heard about an African pastor um, who was in Zimbabwe. He unfortunately died. He was a martyr of the faith. Uh, the, the Christian persecutors actually killed him. But get this, when they, uh, after he was killed, they ended up finding some papers that he wrote about himself. Really, I believe it was his philosophy of life. And I actually want to, I want to read to you a portion of that because I think it'll help you understand what it means to stand firm in the Lord. Listen, listen to what it says. It says, my face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, but my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, Hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of meocracy. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or slow up until I'm preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for Christ. That's what it means to be steadfast. That's what it means to stand your ground in the Lord. And yes, that steadfast got that person killed. And you know what? I think he was okay with that. I think he's in, in heaven right now saying, you know what? I made the right choice to stand my ground in the Lord. So a healthy church, number one, shows affection. Number two, stands firm. Now here's a third characteristic of a healthy church, and that is this. A healthy church seeks harmony. 
A healthy church seeks harmony. In other words, a, a healthy church has the ability to take two parties that are in disagreement with one another and lovingly embrace both of them to help resolve the conflict. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 2 now. This is really the heart of the passage right here. Paul's going to deal with this conflict. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Sintichi. That is a mouthful, by the way. Ladies, are you glad you are not named Yodia and Sintichi? Okay, maybe I offended one of you because that's your name, but I don't think that's the case, right? I urge Yodia, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I urge Yodia and I urge Sintichi. Okay, I think that's right. But listen, listen, to, listen to this now. To agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, to be honest with you, we don't know a whole lot about these women. Okay? In fact, their names are not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. You can search the scriptures. You're not going to find these women names. It's just right here. We don't even know the details of this argument. Maybe it was a potluck gone bad or something like that. We can, we can have our ideas about what it might have been. Instead, all, all we know, all we know is that something, whatever it is, something has happened between them. And their dispute has apparently morphed to the point where it has polarized the church. There's probably a group over here that's like, I sided with this person, and there's probably a group over here, no, I side with this person. And so it's just getting nasty, right? All over probably something very trivial. And, and Paul talks about it. He calls them out. He says, listen, I don't call you. I'm tired of it. It's literally killing the church. The church needs to be healthy. This is killing it. Now, now listen, one thing I do want to point out to you about these ladies is that they were apparently prominent leaders, in the church. Let me show you how I've come to that conclusion. Look at verse 3 again. He says, They contended for the gospel at what? At my side. Okay, at my side. If you remember, about five years ago when I started this sermon series, we talked about how when Paul and the missionary team came to Philippi, there was no church. We talked about how he saw a group of women praying in that meeting. Uh, I believe that it's quite possible these ladies could have been a part of that group. I personally believe that it's quite possible, at, at least, that these ladies were a part of Paul's missionary team, that they were a part of planning the church of Philippi, that they were part of, of building up this body of believers. And listen, I don't know about you, but I love that. I love that, it, that it's just a great reminder that, that women play a vital role in church leadership. It's not just for men, it's for women, Right? Listen, while that's true, I want, to point else, I want to point something else out to you right here, and that is this. While these two women were very important, very influential members of this church, they're going to forever go down in history as the two women who couldn't get along. That's their legacy. I mean, think about that for a moment. Just, just think about that. The, on, the only time they're ever mentioned in the scriptures, in the Bible, it's over an argument they had with one another. And, and now it's immortalized, set in stone. It's their legacy. Probably not an accurate depiction of who they actually were, but that's what they'll forever be known about. I mean, here we are, 2,000 years later, and what are we doing? Talking about this argument. Talking about this. Wouldn't you hate that? 
to be known for that. So let me ask you this morning, if in a hundred years' time, your name was to be discovered in some old document, what one thing would you want the seeker of that document to learn about you? What one thing would you want them to know about who you were as a person? That's, that's a good question to think about, isn't it? And I can bet you this, you wouldn't want it to be, oh, they were really good at arguing. They were really good at not getting along with each other. You wouldn't want any of that, right? So we need to seek harmony with one another. We need to resolve any sort of differences we might have with another individual. You see, that's what Paul is, is trying to help lead these women to do. He's urging these two ladies to resolve their differences. He's actually asking for the church. We don't know who the secret partner is, by the way, but I'm going to guess a church member, and, and probably not just him, but other church members to step in and help out with this too. And now notice what Paul says in verse 2 again. Because I think Paul gives a solution to the argument right here in verse 2. Don't miss the phrasing he uses. He says, I urge you to agree. What does it say next? In the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Again, if you are one to underline things in your Bible, I believe that those words, agree in the Lord, are very important. Again, that's not Paul throwing out some spiritual phrase to make him sound like he knows what he's talking about. That's the solution to the problem itself. That's what Paul's trying to say here, okay? For example, just notice this phrase. It's all throughout this passage. This is, this is the, the, the teaching. In verse 1, he says the same phrase. Stand fast, what? In the Lord. Verse 4, he says it there too. Rejoice, where? In the Lord. And so the idea here with this dispute is that these two ladies should settle their disagreement in the Lord. That's the solution to the problem. But you know, it's one that we oftentimes forget when we get in a dispute, isn't it? For example, when you get in an argument with someone, when you have some type of heated dispute and you disagree with that person on something, typically you have a viewpoint and you think you're right, and they have a viewpoint, and they think they're right. And so when that happens, a lot of times what we do is we just butt heads, right? I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. And we're trying to prove to the other person, no, I know what I'm talking about. He said, no, I know. And you're just pointing fingers back and forth. But so oftentimes what we fail to do is to consult with the Lord in that situation is to stop and pause and reflect and say, God, what would you want me to do in this situation? How, how would you want me to respond? And so what Paul does here, it, it's brilliant. It's clever. Better yet, it's practical. What he does is he takes a social issue and he moves it onto spiritual ground. Okay, so it's no longer a social issue. It's now a spiritual issue. Issue. Again, he says, verse 2, settle the disagreement in the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, stop focusing your thoughts and your actions on your own pride, on your own glory, and start focusing your thoughts and your action on God's glory, what would honor him in this situation, which, by the way, is always going to lead to reconciliation, which is always going to lead to harmony. 
with one another. That's what God wants. That's his will for the church in particular. Now listen, in saying that, let me just give you one more point and then we're going to move on. But I think this is important when we're talking about harmony, when we're talking about unity, in particular unity right here. Unity does not always mean uniformity. Okay, I, I've talked on this before, so I'm not going to not going to say much here. But but please understand, unity does not always mean uniformity. Okay, what I mean by that is that while it is God's desire for us to have harmony, to be unified, He does not expect us to always have the same opinion on things. Okay, to have the same preference. On things. These are, again, more trivial things, not like really big theological things that we have to agree on. Okay, I'll give you a very brief example just to helpfully paint the picture, and we're going to move on. But, but you can take our song service, for example. Okay, take our song service. I know in this room there are some of you where if it were up to you, okay, up to you, you would say every song we sing will be a hymn. That's, that's what you would say, right? Every, we, I, I like hymns. Okay? Now, I also know that there are some of you in this room right now who would say, yeah, but I like contemporary worship. I like listening to things that are coming out now, maybe things I hear on the radio today. Right? And so in that way, we as a church body are different. We have a difference of opinion. And get this, that's okay. Okay? That's okay which is why we typically try to have a blend of both in our service. But listen, the idea is this. If we recognize and realize that the songs we sing, whether they're hymns or whether they're more contemporary worship, if those songs and those words honor God, if they please Jesus, honor Him, then it shouldn't matter what type of style of song we sing. Okay, why? Because we should be unified knowing that our words in our worship, they're glorifying Him. may not be my preference, but I know that they honor God, and so I'm going to sing them. And I'm going to be unified with other believers in that way. Okay, that's just one example, but you could take that and run with it, okay? That's the idea, right? And so, yes, we are a diverse church. We are a multi-generational church. By the way, that's a good thing. And listen, because we are those things, we will have a difference on opinion on this or that, but, but let's be a church that agrees in the Lord. Okay, let's be a church that, that seeks out His will and say, well, I'm going to pray and I'm going to search God and, and see what He tells me what is best in this situation. Let's, let's seek a church, or let's be a church that seeks harmony with one another. All right, so a healthy church, number one, shows affection in that they love and care for one another. Number two, stands firm and that they stand firm in the Lord. Number three, seeks harmony, and that they seek to be unified, to have harmony, settle any disputes. And now Paul gives us a fourth characteristic of a healthy church, and that is this. A healthy church rejoices in the Lord. A healthy church rejoices in the Lord. Look down at verse 4 now. Paul says this. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. Listen, in this series, we've talked a lot about Paul rejoicing in the Lord. Okay, we've done that. In fact, the whole theme of this book, it's what? It's joy. It's to rejoice in the Lord. But what I want you to notice in particular right here is that it seems that Paul is giving us a command to rejoice. For example, look at just the way he writes this verse. Okay, I want to show this to you. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And listen, just in case you didn't hear me the first time, 
I'm going to tell you again. Rejoice. Okay, that sounds like a command to me. That's why he's writing it twice. He's saying, I want you to do this. Okay, when you tell your kid to do something twice, what is that? A command. Clean your room. Do I really have to? Yes, clean your room, right? It's a command. That's kind of the idea I think Paul is getting at here. But, but question for you now, why? Why is he commanding us to rejoice? Why is he commanding us to rejoice in the Lord? Well, could it be? Could it be that sometimes it's hard to rejoice in the Lord? Could it be that sometimes it's difficult to rejoice in the Lord in certain seasons or certain situations of life? See, if we're being honest with ourselves this morning, it's hard to be joyful, isn't it? I mean, it just is. You can say it. It's it's difficult to always rejoice in the Lord. But listen, what that tells me is that joy is more than a feeling. Joy is more than some type of emotion. In fact, I believe joy is a decision, much more than it is a sensation. Okay, say it another way for you. Joy is an outlook that is based on an uplook. That's what Paul is teaching us in this letter. He's teaching us that joy is a personal choice to react to life's uncertainties with faith. Okay, you want a good definition of rejoice or joy? I think that's a great one right there. It is a personal choice to react to life's uncertainties with faith. Okay, and according to this passage, how often are we to do this? How often are we are to, to rejoice? Does it say rejoice in the Lord sometimes? Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Rejoice in the Lord when it's very convenient for you to rejoice in Him. Rejoice in the Lord on Sundays at church. No, we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Always. And listen, that is always a choice that we must make. A choice that we must choose. You see, Paul, he modeled this. He modeled this. He's modeled it now, but let me give you another example of where he modeled it. He modeled it in 2 Corinthians 6. Okay, 2 Corinthians 6, in, in verse 10, I love that verse. Listen to what he says as he writes this in, in 2 Corinthians verse 10. He says, as grieving, yet always rejoicing. I love that. Paul says, I'm grieving, but I'm rejoicing. That sounds weird. But what Paul is showing us is that you can have both. You can grieve and rejoice. You can, build with, you can be uh, filled with sorrow and grief and pain at the same time. Your soul can rejoice. You're experiencing both. You're experiencing one, but you're making the choice for the other. You're, you're responding that way. One of my favorite examples of this in the Bible is when Paul and Silas, they are actually in jail in Philippi. Okay, And you know that story well, right? I'm not going to rehash that for you, but you know that they were put in jail. Uh, we know they were beaten up. We know that they were placed in chains. We know that they were fastened to a wall. We know there was probably a lot of blood, right? Bad place. But then at midnight, what does the Bible tell us they did? It tells us they sang hymns. It tells us they rejoiced in the Lord even in their suffering. See, church, that was a choice that Paul and Silas made in that moment. That was a choice. 
It's a choice we must also make. And so if we're going to be a healthy church, if we're going to be a, a strong church, if we're going to be an effective church that reaches the soul for the, of the lost, then we must be a church that chooses to rejoice in the Lord always. We must be a church that, that shows the unbelieving world that there is reason to be hopeful when all seems hopeless. We, we need to be a church that shows the unbelieving world there is reason to sing even when all seems lost. We need to be a church that shows the unbelieving world that through Christ you can experience joy even in the midst of darkness. Lastly, Paul gives us one more ingredient, and we'll be done. One more ingredient of a healthy church that I see in this passage, and that is number four. A healthy church is known for graciousness. Look with me one last time at our text as Paul gives us one final command here in, in verse 5. He says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. You see, whenever there's a conflict, like this conflict that we're talking about in, in this church, it's that gracious, gentle, diplomatic touch that makes all the difference in that situation. That's the idea that Paul's getting at here, that we need to be gracious when it comes to things like this. He's saying that if we're going to be a healthy church, then we've got to carry around a big bucket of mercy and pour it over any church member who maybe has failed in some area, who maybe has started some type of conflict, who has started some sort of dispute within the walls. We need to pour over mercy on that individual. Okay, for example, for, for those of you in this room who are mature believers, for, for, for those of you who have walked with the Lord for years, who have served in some type of leadership role in this church, you need to show graciousness to those who maybe haven't walked that path yet, who maybe aren't quite as seasoned as you, maybe have made some sort of mistake. You need to show them graciousness. You need to start by criticizing that person, by mocking that person, by belittling that, that, belittling that person. Say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? No, you start with loving guidance. You start with mercy, love, graciousness. Why? <laughs> well, because that's how Christ has treated you. That's how Christ has treated you. He's shown you that time and time again, even when you messed up even when you didn't deserve it. And so listen, if we say we represent Christ, if we say we represent His church, then our actions and how we relate to others should mirror how He treats us, how He relates to us. In other words, the, the church and its members should be known for many things, many things, but at the top of that list should be graciousness towards others because it honors that person, it honors you as a church member, and most importantly, it honors Jesus. Because graciousness reflects the very character of God. So church family, it's my desire. It's my desire, my hope, my prayer to pastor, to be a part of this church, Fredonia Baptist Church. Not so that it can be a dead church, but a healthy church. It's my desire for us not to point fingers at each other and, and have these disputes, but to love one another, to walk alongside each other, to be the hands and feet of Christ to this community and beyond. And listen, 
listen, I know, I know that if you're a member here, okay, that is your desire too. And praise God for it. I'm thankful that that is your desire. But my point is this. What I want you to understand this morning is that if we're going to be those things, then that is a choice each of us must make. We must individually choose that. I can't choose that for you. I can't choose. I'm going to make you be that kind of member. No, you have to be that type of member. You have to make that choice. We must individually choose that. And so today, let's, let's just make a vow. Let's make a vow. I'm going to be a church member who shows affection towards others. I'm going to be a church member who, who stands firm in the Lord. I'm going to be a church member who seeks harmony with one another. I'm going to be a church member who rejoices in the Lord, and I'm going to be a church member who has a reputation, not of pride, not of pointing out other flaws, but of graciousness. Because those are the ingredients needed for a church to grow, for a church to thrive, for a church to be healthy, and for a church to be found in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word, God, as it gives us guidance and clarity. God, in your word, it's mapped out. The scriptures, God, that, that, that it gives us all the things that we need, God, to be a healthy church. To be a church that, that you would want us to be. And so, Father, I, I pray this morning that as we've looked at this text, as we looked at your word that Paul has given us in Philippians 4, God, that we would be a member of, God, that embodies these things. God, that we would show affection, that we would stand firm. God, that we would show graciousness. God, that we would do all these things so that, Father, we can be the church that is honorable to you, God, that reaches out to the lost, and God, that is an effective witness for the, for the members of this church and the community. And so, Father, I pray right now, God, if there's any area we need to give over to you, God, that we would do that in this moment. God, if there's any type of conflict that we have right now, that, God, that we would seek to resolve it, that we would settle any sort of dispute. God, I pray that we can lock arms in this together. God, I pray that we can be unified in this together, God, so that, again, so that we can be who you've called us to be in every season of life. In Jesus' name, amen.